in addition to the content of a Dharma talk, <clears throat> the way of relating to it itself is can be Dharma practice. Kind of samadhi in action. Or developing the ability to listen. So you become aware of the quality of your listening. By noticing how the mind wanders off how it agrees with something that's been said and then goes off on a train of thought, or disagrees and goes off on another one. In this sense, it's not so much the content as remaining awake, so that this occasion is no less an opportunity to practice than anything else we've been doing here. Although, as probably all of us know, you've been working hard all day and it's much easier to fall into the mind that just wants to be entertained. Maybe it'll be a little bit of fun, but mainly it's very serious. I'd like to um, go into a little bit more the you remember a few evenings ago talking about the different minds that we bring to a retreat or even before we come to the retreat itself. Can you hear me in the back? A <clears throat> philosopher named Gurdjieff, who some of you have heard of, one said uh, in describing how the mind is really made up of many minds, how one mind forges a check and then all the other minds have to go to jail. <laughs> and that poor body that's you know, just housing the whole thing, off to jail. So even before getting here, perhaps some of you already know what I'm talking about, there's the mind that decided to practice, that raised the money, that made arrangements, that uh, got babysitters, that talked to your boss, that wrote out a check, that made a telephone call, that mailed it, that put a stamp on it first. A lot of things. Talked about it a lot before. And maybe even during it, perhaps you found out you were on the waiting list and one mind would just say, oh, if only it stays filled up so that I can't get into the retreat. <laughs> Fooled you. Yeah. That way I can tell my friends how much I really love the practice, but I don't have to go because there's no room. And all, the, <clears throat> all those other nice summary minds can do summary type things and But anyway, just as the forger, that mind seemed to rule out for all of us here. So here we all are. And once we get here, that same issue, that is we have 
definitely a, a mind that really wants to practice and it brought us here. And only you know how many times we've left that mind and how other minds have taken over, have entered in and have just run us for five seconds or five minutes or hours. One I see, it can, these changes of minds can happen from moment to moment. You know, we have our agents watching you, those of you who are walking outside. And there's one mind that definitely wants to do walking meditation. But some of you, especially the ones who aim your walking path towards the sun, and then you seem to walk very, very slowly in the direction of the sun, but a lot more rapidly as your back is to the sun. Now, what am I to infer from that? That you want to get a suntan? So that if, even if you don't get enlightened or taste some peace, <laughs> at least you can come home with something worthwhile. But I don't think that in the samadhi training you can uh, please two masters. So I think you have to decide what it is you really want. That is, if you want to uh, get the sunshine, which of course you can get at other times, or if you want to do walking meditation. Sigh. So the mind that decided to practice is the mind that of course is going to want to do walking meditation. And it's not to say that that mind stays with us all day. Obviously, it doesn't. But it's more a matter of remembering and slowly and gradually for that mind to predominate. And for that to happen, uh, it has to want to practice. And so, some of the things I'd like to talk about are, again, about samadhi, which we're still mainly working with, and perhaps uh, clarify it a little bit more, uh, help you understand its value. Because if uh, the mind that wants to practice (coughs) understands its value, even just on a verbal level, perhaps that will strengthen it and perhaps some of the other minds will take a break. I don't know. (coughs) The essence of what we've been learning Um, has been fairly simple. Not easy, perhaps, but certainly simple. Out of all the many things that one can attend to in this very complicated life of ours, this very rich life, we've taken only one thing, the fact that each one of us is breathing. We breathe in and we breathe out. We've reduced all the complexity of life to this one object, It's our workbench, our place of work, kamatana. And that's its beauty and its elegance and its power. That is the very simplicity of it. And it's also why it's so hard. We've got all kinds of other things going on and the instructions are constantly reminding us to go back to the fact that you're breathing. And so, as you know, we're taken away from the breath time and time again. And what takes us away from the breath, by and large, what Karada referred to last night as the kilesas, whether you look at it as greed, hatred, or delusion, or you have other schemes of classification, perhaps looking at it as the five hindrances. I'm assuming that many of you know 
this terminology. That the mind doesn't want to be with the breath because it wants to get something, perhaps some nice sounds or smells or tastes or beautiful forms to contemplate or embrace. Or it gets angry and annoyed, perhaps if it doesn't get its way. If greed doesn't get satisfied, it can easily turn into anger and annoyance and irritability. And both of these are sustained and made possible through the tendency to be confused and dull or deluded, to vacillate, to lack confidence, to hesitate. Where the mind doubts itself or doubts the teaching, doubts the teachers, where it becomes dull and lazy or starts to worry about things, gets restless. And so we know that's what is happening. It's one of the things that's happening. And in the midst of that, we're encouraged to breathe in, breathe out consciously. So what happens when we do that? And why should we do it? Let's talk a little bit about why. In terms of the kilesas, that is these uh, tendencies in each heart, each one of us have these tendencies that whether the image you use of it being embedded in the heart or the heart in the sense being uh, suffocated by it or really wrapped up in it, these tendencies which don't bring fulfillment, which don't bring happiness. The heart here, for those of you who have done some study, is is synonymous with citta. And it's the most precious thing that we have. And so the practice is designed to care for the heart, to look after it. How do we do that? Now, we often are much better at caring for the body. Most of us manage to brush our teeth with regularity and take a shower often and feed the body and so forth. If we get hurt, we care for that hurt part, we're protective of it. If we get excessively sunburned, we're careful to avoid bumping into people and we'll put a salve on it. But when it comes to the heart, more often than not, we keep using it. But a genuine care for it is something that I'm afraid we all need to learn how to do. And the Buddha gave us two main ways to do that. One is the way of calm, which is what we're doing, the samadhi practice, or sometimes we refer to as samatha, serenity, developing serenity. And the other is panya, or wisdom. Both of these are ways of caring for the heart. Now, the samadhi practice that we're doing is not a final or ultimate caring for the heart because it doesn't uproot the kalesas. But it gives us a way of living with them which is extraordinarily vital and important. Everything, all the problems that we have 
come out of our heart right here. Those kalesas are in us. And the potential for freedom is in us. And one way to view the entire path that we're on, the entire practice, is some kind of epic drama, a struggle between the kalesas, which are very, very powerful and have had a lot of practice, and right now, probably, nothing personal, but probably reign supreme. And wisdom, which is undeveloped. We have, all of us have some wisdom, of course, or we wouldn't survive. But a, a wisdom that has a depth that's capable of guiding the heart in a direction that's good for it is undeveloped for most human beings. So in a sense, we have in the middle the heart, which is this uh, infinite capacity to know. as a, It's the most precious thing we have. And finally, it's pure. It's luminescent. And on the one hand, it's dominated by the kalesas. It takes its instructions. It is coerced by. It is set in motion in directions which prove to be destructive for it. So it's a strange thing that the heart thinks thoughts that hurt itself and feels feelings that hurt itself. These all come out of us. Now we tend to put it on someone. Recently someone said, that person drove me up the wall. And that's a way of of speaking. But really, is that actually what happened? Or is it more that we drove ourselves up the wall using that person? Now, as the mind becomes more clear, we see that that's really what's happening. That it is possible, if we were completely free, to really care for ourselves independent of what's being done to us. So, the heart at this point, in a sense, doesn't have direction, or doesn't have very clear direction, because it doesn't know itself very well. And being dominated by the kalesas, and some evidence that it is, I mean, perhaps you agree, that greed, hatred, and delusion are very, very powerful, is simply the fact that we're here. Look at how hard we have to work. How many uh, sermons and talks, and how, many, how, how often we have to be encouraged to do things that are, in quotes, good for us. And we don't budge. We're so stubborn. It's very hard. And it's all directed at this. The practice is all directed to, in a sense, redress a major imbalance. And that's the other side. Say that calm and wisdom, the benefactors of the heart, are very undeveloped. All of us have known some calm. We've known some clarity. Sometimes the mind is very peaceful and and bright, and we've been wise from time to time. We've seen things that we're doing that aren't working and stopped it, or prevent, or stopped doing it in the first place before we do destructive things. But overall, those forces are much weaker than the power of the kalesas. And as a result, it's the heart that suffers. It's the heart that keeps scorching itself now, what is it that's opposed to the kalesas? It's the Dharma. The Dharma is what puts out the fire. The fire that burns us, 
time and time again. Now, when we look at Dharma that way, we begin to understand some things. For example, simple things like laziness. Again, not to condemn this, because I want to make it clear from the outset, introducing the Kalesas is not to give you another way of thinking badly about yourself. You know, you came here perhaps with some psychiatric categories about yourself or whatever, and now you have a, can go home with a new set of how you stand in terms of these, these tendencies. It's not, it's not you're a greedy person or that you're a, a, a violent person or that you're a deluded person, but rather that you're a suffering person. We are suffering people as long as the heart is under the control and domination of these forces. Okay, now when we look more closely at the Dharma side, so let's say laziness. There's, laziness is often in strict opposition, in direct opposition to Dharma. Because very often what it's counseling you to do is exactly what you don't need to do. It just it tells you to, uh, for example, see if I can think of one. There's so many that... Looking at the size of this pillow, I don't know who's sitting on it, but I'm sure there's a good reason for it. But let's say tonight, there'll be a possibility... The whole family sitting there? Oh. Uh, tonight, uh, there'll be an optional sitting. And as you know, the retreat, as it goes on, you may feel more and more like taking advantage of that. That is, have your tea, and instead of going to sleep, coming here and sit. But at some point, perhaps tonight, perhaps you've already faced it, it's going to be a choice of two pillows, you know? Is it going to be this one here that you're going to sit on, or is it the pillow upstairs in your room? And there's going to be a voice that's going to say, very sweet, it's going to sound perhaps like your mom or your dad when you weren't feeling too well, and let's say had a little cold and needed some hot chocolate and animal crackers. And it's going to say, you've worked so hard. You're so good. Just toddle off on upstairs and tuck yourself in. And get that nice other pillow, not this bad pillow down here. Now, I'm not saying that you should always stay here. In fact, more and more as the week unfolds, some of what I hope we all improve our ability to do is discern the difference between the kalesas and wisdom. Because sometimes wisdom will be saying, you know, go upstairs and go to sleep for goodness sakes. And it will be wise and correct and finally in your benefit. How do we tell the difference? I would suggest step number one, start to listen. Pay attention. Hear what, where it's coming from. You, you'll be able to tell the difference. Sometimes it's very subtle. Okay. For this evening, uh, I just want to sketch out a bit of how does a samadhi practice help us with these kalesas? That is, if, if dharma is an attempt to protect the heart from itself, really, how does following the breath do that? How does that help us do that? Okay, the truth is it's not the breath the breath is one of many objects that you could use to accomplish the same end. But what we are doing is something like this. 
the mind has many preoccupations. And we've, that's what we've been talking about. The, let's say the various kilesas and the subtle derivatives of them. All those tendencies in, of mind, which when you look closely, and perhaps most of us already know, don't lead to peace, don't lead to fulfillment. In fact, often make us very unhappy. But we follow those minds anyway. We get caught in them very often feeling helpless, perhaps not knowing why we dwell in such unpleasant states so long, why a peace is so scarce. But nonetheless, we wind up running after the bone time and time again, like a dog running after the bone. The mind throws up something, we're off and running. Get it? We do come back to the breath from time to time. But just imagine as your ability to exchange all of these other preoccupations, no matter what they are, for the breath improves. Can you see the beginnings of something? That is, you now have an option that you never had. It's now, let's say you come back to the breath time and time again. Now that coming back has an effect. Perhaps some of you have seen some of that, either in previous retreats or just in the few days we've been here. That paying attention to breathing is an act. It's not, it's not really passive. It has consequences. Have any of you noticed that if you're aware of the breathing, that is, the more you're able to be with the in-breath and be with the out-breath, there's a tendency, a strong tendency, for the breath to become longer, deeper, that is, for it to smooth out, for it to become more fine, for it to be, uh, to have more ease, for, for the breathing to be easier, for it to be more pleasant, and perhaps to begin to taste some happiness and stillness, even if it's just for a moment. So that if you see that, really learn from it. That is, it's the law, Dharma is also, natu- another meaning of it is natural truth. These are the laws of nature. And apparently when we're very attentive to breathing, it starts to change the breath. We're not trying to control the breath at all. In fact, if you try to do it, it has the reverse effect. All we're doing is breathing consciously. Of course, while we're doing that, we're keeping out of trouble. And you may notice that the breath is very smooth and deep and fine, and suddenly you have one nasty thought, and that's it. The breath suddenly becomes choppy and agitated and shallow and unpleasant. And so some of what's happening is all of these preoccupations, of course, are preventing the breath from liberating, from being free. And a lot of what we're doing by just paying attention to the breath is we're helping to set it free. If we can to begin to set the breath free is to begin to set ourselves free. So if you can begin to notice that, you realize you now have a resource that you didn't know you had. Now sometimes people can be practicing for a long time and this tendency is happening. The breath gets longer and calmer, calmer and so forth. But somehow we don't make the connection that we actually have control over the breathing. Now, Please be careful with this word. I don't mean we're trying to manipulate the breath. All I mean is that we learn that if we pay attention to the breath, 
its quality changes and it changes in a way that's beneficial for us. Oh, I see that. I get it. And as that gets stronger, you're able to, for example, it's like, uh, this dates me a bit, but you know, take a needle off a phonograph, just gently lift it off. So let's say there's some negative state or the beginnings of some preoccupation that's not going anywhere. It's perhaps some worry that you've had and you've said it to yourself about 500 times just in one day. And the 500 first, first time, you, don't, you just lift the needle gently off the record and you come back to the breath instead. You short-circuit that. So you've avoided that suffering. Now, more and more, we have an option that we didn't have, which is to turn towards the breath or whatever object it is that we've elected. And as we do that, what we do is we let go of a lot of suffering that would have been had we just been pushed around blindly. And so one way in which we care for the heart is through bringing some calm to it. Calm is a tremendous form of nourishment for the heart. Stillness. Even if you had a few moments Doesn't it feel very good? Isn't there something very beautiful about stillness? But it's also important to learn to see that it's in your hands. That is, if you practice correctly, that is, if you uh, keep the mind that decided to practice by coming, coming back to the breathing time and time again, you become better at it. And you can let go of aspects of mind that 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 uh, cause suffering and more and more enter into that object that we're using to anchor the heart, to give it some grounding, some footing, so it's not just pushed around by all the different winds of the mind. It has a, it has a position. It can position itself. Now, this stillness is very, very important as you taste it. The Buddha once referred to the Vimalo may have to help me out on this one. Uh, it's either the taste or the flavor of Dharma. There's the, the best taste or the best flavor is the taste of Dharma. Something like that? Yeah. Okay. In other words, there are many tastes in the world, Right? You can say almost anything can be experienced as a taste. But what the Buddha said, the best taste of all is the taste of the Dharma. And the first taste, and increasingly the most convincing taste, is the taste of stillness in the samadhi practice. When the mind tastes some calm, especially as the calm becomes deeper. When instead of it just being for a moment here or there, there are periods of calm And then finally where it becomes something that you can enter into at will. Where if you want to drop into calm, you can. This is not enlightenment, but it's the development, it's the outcome of samadhi practice. Now, this taste of the Dharma is so essential because until we have it, we keep hearing all this talk And yet we prefer the things that seem to often create suffering because we haven't a higher happiness as our experience yet. 
And so why would anyone want to let go of something unless they had something else to exchange it for? Faith is good. Conviction is good. We need it to launch us. But at a certain point, we need some fruit. And as the fruit starts to drop, we start to taste some stillness. Of course, it feeds the practice. The mind that decided to practice wants to do that more. It starts to believe in itself. It starts to value what it's doing. Now, as this stillness becomes deeper, and I hesitate to say, you know, there are technical ways in which we could talk about this depth. But let's just say when, when you have extended periods of stillness, and the more still you are, the more happy you are. There's a point, and this is not the final point, but it's a very wonderful one and very helpful uh, for our Vipassana work as well, when the only object is the awareness itself. That is, there's pure knowingness. This is part of the samadhi practice. Uh, there's, you enter into knowingness, knowingness knowing itself. There are no other objects. And it's a very, very happy state. Can you imagine if there are no other objects, there's no suffering? Because it's unwanted thoughts that are the suffering. We have all these unwanted thoughts. We have a taste of that when we go to sleep at night, in deep sleep when there are no dreams. And if we didn't have that, I don't know if we'd make it. I think scientists are saying we wouldn't. But we're not conscious. Now here is a place where uh, there are no aramana, no other objects. And it's just knowingness turned in on itself. Now, one of the reasons this is so important, and this conviction can come well before it, so if you feel you're far away from that, don't worry about it. But there are decisive moments, at least some of us experience things like this, which are even well before this, where what, what happens is uh, the preciousness of the heart becomes obvious. You have to experience some of the marvels some of the real joys of the heart in repose, in peace. Now, in repose doesn't mean dull or asleep. Because in this stillness, we're lucid. But what we begin to learn is uh, what is at stake in practice. And what's at stake is the quality of our own heart. And we begin to see, in a very vivid way, what all the fuss is about. I mean, what are all these books, endless treatises written for thousands of years and people going off into caves and mountains and crawling away and not talking to anyone for years and months? Are they all just nuts? Maybe. But until there's some taste that's beyond what we've known and it comes from within and we understand, oh, this is all within. It's available to me. And so we begin to learn. Now, this is not enlightenment. We, it has nothing to do with vipassana or insight. But what it is, is the mind can learn to come to a place of great stability. In the samadhi practice, if we can backtrack a bit now, at first, when the mind has had no training at all, there's just a cascade of thoughts and images 
all over the place. And it can get, some people get very discouraged when they come to retreats and they see the nature of their mind. It might be a, a bank president or president of a university, and it's quite degrading and humiliating when you see that you've been making all these important decisions and this is the mind that's been doing it. <laughs> this mind got, gets married, it does everything. Uh, and if it isn't properly understood, it can be very discouraging and the person can leave the path or do all kinds of things. But at a certain point, you begin to see that this cascading mind, where the energies are all scattered, is actually weakening us. That is, the energies are diluted because first it's worrying and then it's planning and then it's doing, thinking this and then it's imagining that and then it's thinking about this. If nothing else, when we come to calm, we break that habit of compulsively always imagining and thinking, worrying and planning, constantly dwelling in the past, constantly imagining a future that's really not going to be not that way. And when we reside, even for a little while, in some stillness, that habit pattern is shaken up a little bit. And we understand that there's, there are other ways to be. We don't have to incessantly and compulsively worry and think and plan and all the rest of that. Okay, but what factually what happens is, since we're using the breath, is there's a convergence of all these scattered energies. They're collected. They're brought together around the breath. In other words, the breath is, in a sense, the medium that unifies our attention much like a magnifying glass, let's say the rays of the sun. It's not different. So the mind becomes very powerful. A still mind, as Corrado mentioned, is a strong mind. It's not all over the place. It's steady. Now, in order to do that, we've had to do some other things that Corrado referred to, I feel. There's definitely renunciation involved. There are all kinds of things that we could have gone after in our, in, our, in our mind instead of the breath. And as you know, we do that. But more and more, especially as you taste the fruit of the practice, you're able to let go. Even some very tempting states. Okay, great, I'm coming back to the breath. We'll do that later. Essentially what it is, let's say when we do this practice, it's a temporary renunciation of the world. The world meaning it's not literally objects out there, but the way in which our mind is preoccupied with what we call the world. Getting this and getting that, ridding ourselves of this and that, and so forth. And so, to drop that, all that rich content, in other words, our story, the stuff that makes soap operas, our own soap opera, first and foremost, we're taking the needle off the record and we're opting for a new choice, which is we enter into the breath. It's a little bit like choosing just spring water for all these wonderful, dazzling drinks now. You know, they're all combination. Raspberry, lime, apple, peach. Or all the different colas. Or beers and wines and whiskeys. And there's a lot of things to drink. Many of them aren't so good for us, we find out. Who wants just a, a, a glass of clear spring water? Maybe in this room some people might. <laughs> but by and large, how can that compete with all these other very colorful kinds of drinks? Well, it's something like that. Until 
the simplicity of the breath proves itself to you. But at the beginning, I'm afraid we have to do it a lot and get pulled away from it a lot. And that's why we need to come together as a Sangha, as a community of people all practicing together and pulling in the same direction, going in the same direction. And people like Corrado and I who have this bad karma to have to keep talking about it over and over again. (laughs) So that we can all keep each other on the cushion until we, this cushion down here, until we begin to see that this teaching that's been protected and handed down to us for thousands of years through countless yogis, in various countries and now we have it and it's something quite real and it doesn't belong to any country or culture it belongs to the human race now this part of the practice learning how to drop into some degree of calm, or how to taste some degree of calm at first. It's so very important early on in the practice. And most of us here are new at the practice, relatively speaking. A few years is still new. We're all babies at this. And we need some refreshment. There's the, the heart has to be gladdened. And a simple event like being with the breath can provide that. It can lift us up. It gives us a source of of joy and happiness and peace. Now, and that can be very intense. The stillness can be more constant and it also gets more subtle. And it's from that place let's say, of that ability to rest the mind, let's say, to hearten it, to give it this kind of dharma nourishment, if you want to talk about it that way. It's that process which makes the mind fit to do investigation, to look into itself. Probably most of us here are mainly interested in wisdom and why are we spending so much time on samadhi? Well, they both really work together. Sometimes people emphasize one rather than the other. In some uh, places in Thailand, they talk about samadhi as if it's for children or people who aren't serious about practice. Uh, Whereas really, both samadhi and vipassana work together just the way two arms work together. And so if if you would take either one of them and, and make that some kind of exclusive thing. It's like being proud that you have one arm. Or it's like saying, well, all the worthwhile things that we do are done actively. Sleep is not necessary. What do I get done in sleep? I don't think I'll sleep anymore. Try it. See how long you can go. And so the mind does need a way to refresh itself, to enliven itself, to gladden itself. And then... It can come out of that state and it is much more fit to investigate some subjects like fear, impermanence, no self. It's, a lot of this is just common sense. Let's say if you have a good night's rest, aren't you more able to deal with your problems 
whether they be your mind or just in the world, don't you have a, a better chance of doing what's right and what's sensible? Whereas if you had, haven't had much sleep, perhaps a few nights and very little sleep, uh, we're not as reliable. We're more touchy. We're more irritable. We don't have as much endurance, much pa- as much patience. Well, and it, this is what we're working on. We're equipping the mind so that it can be fit to get to know itself. And in the getting to know itself, free itself. That's why we do this practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.